sitting at this table. There were some baller Web3 folks there, right? I'm like, oh, cool. Do you got NFTs? What's your ETH address? I put it in and then I show them this thing. And then basically what Instaspatial does is it takes your wallet address, instantly makes a 3D gallery. And he's like, oh shit, that's my doodle or that's my whatever. And he's like, holy crap. And then other people around the table is like, why is he so excited? Let me see. They're like, oh man, that is really cool. And that's all piggybacking on the cinematography magic of Peter too, because when it opens, sometimes Instaspatial hasn't even loaded yet, but it has this cool star wipe effect or something, kind of like a Star Wars or like a Kill Bill kind of intro. So you just feel so hyped and you haven't even seen anything yet. It's got you so hyped. That just got everyone so hyped at that table. Like, oh man, can I get mine? Or like, where can I sign up? Take my card. That was pretty freaking cool. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang. And as always, I have my co-hosts, Lee Chang and Andrew Su with me. What's up, guys? Hey, how's it going? So over the past few months, I've been honored to work with my friends Anand and Peter at Spatial. Spatial is a metaverse platform that allows you to host virtual galleries and events in beautiful artist-built spaces in VR, mobile, and web. Anand Agarwala is the CEO and co-founder of Spatial, and Peter Ng is the VP of Design. This is Peter's second time on the podcast. We had him on last year when Spatial pivoted into NFTs last year. Anand and Peter first met and worked together on the Android team at Google in 2011, when Google acquired Anand's first company, BumpTop, and incorporated BumpTop's touchscreen user experience into the Android phone. Peter led Google's evolution into becoming a design-first company by creating material design, prototyping Google Hangouts, Google Now, and Google Keep. Welcome, Anand Peter. What's up, what's up? Excited to be here again. Wait, am I the first double? <laughs> I think you're one of the first doubles, yes. <laughs> wow. Very excited to, ha- very excited to have you guys. Or a repeat, I think I want to call it the repeat. <laughs> the repeatering. More Peter, more furious, <laughs> this time with more Anand. So Anand, I wanted to start with you. In 2006, you submitted your thesis for the Computer Science Master's Program at University of Toronto, titled Enriching the Desktop Metaphor with Physics, Piles, and the Pen. This thesis eventually became your first startup bump top. Please tell us more about that. I started my master's back in 2004. This was a different time in uh, computing. I mean, the iPhone didn't exist. I don't even know what the internet connection speeds were. I'd started this HCI program. I wanted to do something pretty epic, as always, right? computing at the time, like there was this idea that tablet PCs and pen-based computing was going to be a big deal. Most folks are probably too young to think about or imagine a time like that. But, you know, Microsoft would launch these tablet PCs and they had like little styluses and stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, we can be we can have much more natural interfaces if we have these kind of pen-based computers. And what we had seen happening is that Microsoft, what they were doing is they took the classic Windows style desktop with start menu and right click and stuff, which doesn't really make any sense for a pen. What you really kind of need to do is, and the interface question that we were trying to ask is like, what if you design an entire interface for a pen or a finger? I think the idea was like, as we move to more natural interfaces, keyboard, mouse, that's yesterday. We're going to move to more natural things like pen and finger. So how do we redesign an interface for touch? And so BumpTop was like, okay, I was like, how can we blow that out? How can we really do some crazy stuff with it? Well, what is the ultimate interface design for touch? It's probably the real world, right? We like, we're always like, I mean, literally you're touching stuff, your desk, your, your computer desktop. The idea was like, can we evolve that? The desktop metaphor is like, let's make computers easy to understand. Command line interfaces are hard. People understand their desk, right? They pile stuff up. They, you know, they have sticky notes everywhere. My computer desktop looks very different from that. Can I bring in some of these cues and also optimize around touch? 
And so playing around with a lot of these ideas, I used a gaming grade physics engine to try to make the, basically simulate, like go hardcore with the desktop metaphor, try to take it to its logical conclusion. So basically all the icons on a bump top desktop were physics objects. So you could toss them into a, a corner, they'd pile up, you could make them bigger and they'd be heavier and they'd knock over the lighter ones. So it was really fun and playful and stuff. And yeah, I mean, that was the genesis behind bump top. That's it in a nutshell. So I have so many questions. The first question is, when you're in your master's computer science program, I mean, at that point, basically you're writing papers, maybe writing some code, but how do you turn that into like a real product? Like how do you recruit the people to actually build this into like a real company? How did that work? Yeah, it was definitely accidental. I was just trying to make like a cool thesis. You know, it's weird. I look back at like journals and stuff from that time. I was like against creating a business. I thought it was like, you know, extra cap anti-capitalism, extracting money from people like, yeah, it's got to be about the art, bro. You know, like that kind of vibe. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily all in on making a company. I think what happened was I was showing it to people. I was showing bumped up to people like there'd always be people coming, visiting professors and stuff like someone from Pixar would come over or whatever. I always got pretty good feedback. And what happened was I don't know what clicked in my head. Like, I'm like, OK, I got I'm graduating from a master's. I got to get a job. I don't know, what should I do kind of thing. And I had this thing, this bump top thing. I put a video online. I was publishing a conference. I made this video and put it online. And it really blew up. In the first week, it got nearly a million views. And this was back in the day in YouTube. Like, it was actually the most watched video tech demo of that time. Like, in the first week, we got to the number one slot of YouTube.com, which was crazy. And then it was, like, number one in science for so long. And then I was literally sitting at work. I mean, because I, I was work in the sense that I was trying to figure out how to make all this stuff work. It was Toronto, not a lot of VCs and stuff. The, the, the scene was not very cool. I was trying to commercialize it at this other company, but I was at this random architecture company. I got a call from Fox News, and this guy's like, super radio voice. Hey, is this Anand? I'm like, yeah, why? why? He's like, this is Fox News. What is Bump Top? And what are you doing? Is it a scam? What's going on? I was like, uh, what, dude? Like, I was like at work. I was so confused. And I turned out, I don't know if you guys remember, but I've just gotten dug. I get all this weird shit kept happening to me. Like my undergrad University of Calgary hit me up and they're like, hey, our servers are getting maxed out by total number of connections for downloading your video. And it's causing our whole server to crash. You know, I'm like, what is going on here? I was saying that it turned out I was on dig.com. I was featured, like bump top was featured. And, it, you know, I'm like, oh my God, what the hell? I'm like, okay, let me put a mailing list up because I don't really have a product. You know, it was really a demo. I mean, people wanted this product. They, they saw this video. They were so hyped. And you know what I mean? I'm like, fuck, I can't just release this thing. It's not even, it doesn't even link to your desktop files. It's just like block boxes. Like it's literally just, it's just the sample code project of the physics engine, but wrapped with images for icons. And so I just put a mailing list up and tried to capture all the demand and then eventually tried to build it up. But it was very accidental. I was kind of like, Hmm. I don't know if I ever want to start a startup, but this seems like a good starting point because I've got all this momentum behind me. So if I'm going to do it, I should probably do it now because I've got something behind me. And then once you decided, I mean, you're in Toronto, the startup landscape, the VC landscape probably isn't as vibrant as other cities. How did you actually go out and build this company? No, nah, it was hard, man. It was so hard. I mean, everyone in the Toronto startup scene was, it was not Silicon Valley at all. And this was like in an era where it's people, you know, like I forget the rule, but it's like Silicon Valley VCs. If you're not 10 miles from the 101 or 280 or whatever, we're not investing. In Toronto's tech scene, the money there was all former bankers, very conservative, very Canadian. It was frustrating because I had got invited to speak at TED. I'm on the main stage. I'm meeting like all these fancy VCs and stuff. I went to go meet, I met John Doerr and all this stuff, but couldn't really get people to invest. I mean, eventually I scraped together, I think 400K 
know, I had this random uncle who was supposed to invest. He never did. It was like a big, big drama thing. But these guys, Extreme Labs, they've actually become very close friends and mentors now in Toronto. They, they, they were really kind of responsible for uh, incubating some of the startup scene there and got them to invest. But yeah, scraped, barely scraped by to try to invest some money. And then, I mean, the hiring was actually the easiest part because I was in grad school and I was working in the lab, in the University of Toronto lab. And like my friends were graduating and I'd be like, hey, do you guys want to join me? Do you want to join me? Like, you know, Mike Yurka is like a grad school buddy. You guys know him because uh, we work with him at, uh, he's our VP engineering at Spatial. But that was the easiest part, which I realize now, like I'm getting all these incredible, everyone was so baller on our team, so talented because they're top grad school, HCI kids and really ready to rock. So the hiring was the easiest part. The fundraising was the hard part, but Canadian salaries uh, being low and shred like tax credits and stuff was able to make it, able to stretch it out. And then just kind of long, long grind for sure. We like, we launched a desktop app, we launched a Mac app and that sort of thing. You mentioned your TED Talk and actually I've seen it multiple times, like from the first time I maybe met you back in like maybe 10 years ago to now, I've seen, I just watched it again. What was that TED-like talk experience like? Because especially at that time, like that's like, it means you made it, right? Yeah, man. It was like, I remember when I got the email, this was when TED was cool. There was no TEDx. There was just TED. And like, everyone telling who's got the TED talk, you know, it was like, oh, you owe oh, TEDx, which TEDx? Like, no, no, there was no X. It was just the main one. But it was like Christmas because I don't know if like you remember the scene, it, it, Al Gore, Inconvenient Truth, that came out. And that was kind of from his TED talk, which blew up and blew up TED. And I got an email right around Christmas. I remember that same year, that same year I went viral. It was probably like late summer because I would have been just graduating or something like September. And then in December, I got the email. Boy, actually, before that, Steve Jobs wanted to hire me as part of the iPhone team because of the bump top stuff. And that was wild. That whole journey of potentially getting hired at Apple saying no to them. But on the TED front, yeah, I got the email. They asked me to pay the five, six grand. And I'm, I'm a student, man. Like, this sucks. But it's like also TED. And I'm like, oh, fuck. I was like, okay, my, my family's like, look, man, we're not coming from a lot of means, but like, I understand what this means. We'll scrape it together. And eventually, I think I ended up paying the fee and then they refunded it. But because of the exchange rate, Canadian dollars actually lost money, which is, it's all good because Ted's done me well. Hold on, hold on. So typically for people that actually get invited to speak as a Ted guest, you have to pay they changed that. They, uh, I know it's mental, right? It's abusive, but they changed it. Totally. <laughs> I think they changed it right then and there. I mean, like right around that time, which was 2007. But yeah, brutal. Anyway, so back to the TED experience. Yeah, we ended up going. I mean, man, it was like crazy because I'm like this kid who grew up in Calgary, like, you know what I mean? Toronto, like hadn't really traveled much. And then I'm there when I land. Cameron Diaz is in line with me. And I'm like, what? I never, I don't think I've seen a celebrity. I like make eye contact with her. Time stops. And then like J.J. Abrams walks by and then Bill Clinton's walks by. I'm like, where am I? And then I got, because you're a speaker, everyone gets a suitcase full of TED stuff. You know, there's like a drone in there and all that stuff. And if you're a speaker, you get like a hockey bag full of additional stuff. And then like you get the hotel and it's got your name on it on a pillow with a watch and stuff. And I'm like, what is this life? This is crazy. And I was really trying to seize the moment for sure, right? It's like, oh man, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I literally have a free pass to like some of the most influential people in the world. So I really got to make this count. So it's definitely a high stress. And I don't know if everyone can tell, but I'm pretty stressed in that talk. There's a lot of nervous laughs and stuff. I was also super confused too, because they're laughing in the video. I don't know if you, I, mean, I guess you've seen it. I have forced you to watch it several times, I guess. But when I'm up there, I'm trying to like be this serious visionary, Steve Jobs. 
and show people the future of computing. And they're like laughing. Like as soon as those icons drop from the sky with the physics, people just start cracking up. And I'm like, what? I was so nervous. I start laughing. Are they laughing at me or with me? I'm trying to do science here. I was so confused. So it ended up working out amazingly and opened up a million doors for me. But yeah, it was wild. No, I, I think, no, totally. It's the energy you bring, Anand. And actually, we should link that video because I saw it for the first time recently. And I think it gives good context because I think it also sets a good tone for understanding kind of, because I can see like how that maybe when we want to hear about the journey into spatial, right? How that eventually led to that. But I mean, look at it now, even it's cool. It's like, oh, this is something that actually you developed like over 10 years ago, right? But even looking at it now, it's like something you don't realize it's been that long since like something of that nature, even now would be pretty cool to have in our devices. We can't take it for granted, right? But it's just really cool what you're able to create at that time. It's 18 years ago. Oh, is it that long? 2004. Yeah, so I'm going to actually place that date, right? 2007. 2007 is when the iPhone came out, right? Oh, 2004, first line of code. I want to get some priority date on that. <laughs> 2000, 2004, first line of code of bump top, right? But 2007 was when the iPhone came out. And it wasn't until the iPhone that came out it was which, which touchscreens were real, right? At the time, multi-touch wasn't available. Basically, what Anand was doing at the time was very revolutionary. And so by 2010, Steve Jobs couldn't have you, but Google Googled with their Android ended up buying you, right? And that's where you met Peter. Can you tell us a little bit about that acquisition and joining the Android team? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I like it. Steve Jobs couldn't have me. I mean, they paid a little more. They could have had me. I mean, I, I was like, they were just so damn stingy. I don't know, Peter, if I've told you the story, but they were giving me barely car money, you know, and I, I wanted boat money. That was like in my nouveau, like, I don't know, whatever 20 something mindset I had, some crazy mindset I had. I mean, the Android acquisition, that was also wild. I mean, for the fellow founders there, we thought we were going to have to shut down the company. Bump Top had been around for uh, near four years. It was like three and a half years. And we raised like 1.6 mil to date, which it's so crazy to imagine that was like, that was over three rounds too. Like, you know what I mean? It was crazy to imagine that's three rounds worth in today's scale. But we were in Silicon Valley trying to raise money. We, we were so excited. We went to Silicon Valley. We had all the big meetings lined up like Sequoia, Kleiner, Excel, every, all the big shots. And we we're so hyped. And then one after another that week, no, 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 no. And it was like, oh my God, we're going to have to go and shut down the company. And it was just a super depressing week. And then right on that last day of the week, we were there from Monday to Friday. That Friday, we're driving home. Me and my CEO at the time, Nino, were like lamenting, like, what the hell are we going to do? We're going to have to tell the company we're going to shut down. Check my inbox. There's an email from Andy Hertzfeld, who's Mac Daddy of the Mac. He's in the movie of Steve Jobs. Like, he's the other guy. Right. And he's like, hey, there's interest from Google to acquire you. And would you be interested? I mean, of course, there's lots of considerations and blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe this is happening. And it ended up happening. And that Andy Hertzfeld connection was through a connection I made at TED. Like I had met Mike Herf, who's the creator of Picasa at TED at the speaker's party. He like one thing led to another. He brought me to Google, introduced me to Andy Hertzfeld, who's obviously the god. He invested in Bumptop. And then not many people know that Andy Hertzfeld is actually a founder of Android. It's a very little told story, but he actually co-founded it with Andy Rubin. I think he's parted ways early on, but anyway, so that hooked that up. And then that was the era of rock and roll and mobile where I met my boy, Peter. I think Peter joined Google, like, I mean, I joined Android in 2010, May. And then I think Peter probably like a year later, I think. I think it was early 2011. That's when I kind of moved to the Bay. Yeah, it was kind of fun times because I think I was around employee 100-ish on the Android team, I mean. And, and I remember Andy Rubin being like, you guys, are, we were about 10 people at the time. So you're like, you guys are going to be about 10% of the Android team. You guys are going to be a really big chunk. 
And I think Peter must have been early, too. And that was like, man, to have a front row seat. I don't know how you reflect on those days, Peter, but to have a front row seat at like the birth of the mobile revolution, the mobile era was like just so cool to just be part of. Like we had our install base graph, like a graph on the wall. And it was just like, like just go crazy inflection point and. I remember when I joined Android, one of my turning points was like, I'd call it, like when people say, what do you work on? I'm like, Android. They're like, what's that? And I'm like, oh, it's like Google's version of iPhone. And then obviously you didn't have to say that anymore. But yeah, I'm kind of curious what Peter's take was on that time. It was wild. It felt like very rock and roll because it was so crazy. And Yeah, it was kind of weird because I remember wanting to leave my post in Hollywood and just working in that whole industry. And then I was really excited to go to like a younger type of company like Google, which was, I mean, everyone knew Google. And I remember stepping in the office and I was like, oh, it was, it was just like such a downgrade from facilities. It was like a bunch of boxes. It was like, literally, it looked like a startup, but like how you imagine a startup today. It's just like literally someone's garage or something. Everything was all over the place. The walls only went up. It was like an open office was really just an open cubicle. with like someone just took the inside cubicles off. So it was like very underwhelming. But I remember looking at a photo of my desk and it was just like such a mess. It was just like snacks and just people overworked and just t- taking naps there. But it was really exciting. It wasn't what, what I expected from going to a place like Google. And it's hard to imagine that. So if you could like put that in your mind, it's like, oh, you go to Google, you, you think you made it and then you go in there and it's like, oh, but in Android, it's like a really crummy building with a lot of people that haven't showered in a very long time. <laughs> We're just like really trying to make something happen. Well, he chose that, right? I think Andy could have had one of the sexier offices, but he wanted to be detached from the main campus so people wouldn't meddle. So he had one of these crappy older buildings and he even said like, yeah, the carpet still smells like urine and stuff like that. Like it was not a sexy office at all. So Anand, tell me a little bit about, I know like Peter's done a lot for Google during his time. So tell us a little bit about what Peter's done as like a firsthand experience. Yeah, get a little mushy, but uh, I think like Peter's one of the most talented designers in the world. I think his breadth of work, like I've seen him throw down. I mean, he's the founding designer of Google Meet, Google Hangouts, Google Keep, Google Now, material design. Like he really kind of just like him and another person, which is now the face of modern Android for sure, modern mobile computing, and we grew to be a much bigger team. And even Hangouts, he brought, oh, and, and also the, it was a chat app as well, but there's just, it's just a staggering breadth. Plus Uber, he turned Uber 3D. So I think just the amount of interfaces he's kind of single-handedly made are really prolific, definitely understated. I think he's not like a big brand guy, so he doesn't have like a million followers on Twitter and stuff as some other folks do, but just crazy staggering body of work, I think. Always really fresh and innovative. I think his process is really interesting, which I'm curious to learn about more in this podcast. But also Google Meet. I mean, I think, I don't know what you felt your first big hit was, but Google Hangouts at the time, that was kind of groundbreaking as an app because that was the first time that Hangouts, which like we're doing now, worked in a browser. Like it was never possible to do video communications in a browser. Like they'd just gotten WebRTC working in Chrome and stuff. So getting that to work and feel right, it's kind of visible. And I feel like all the modern video conferencing tools we use today as well. So very influential. Oh, thank you. That was very, that was very nice. I'm tearing up. (laughs) All right. So I actually want you to walk us a little bit through the impact that of what you did, because a lot of the design what we see today, right? A lot of it is inspired by material design. Just to kind of give some context, before this time period, Google is a very engineering heavy organization and they didn't care anything about design, right? They, all they cared about was A-B testing and whatever color came up, that was what the, the color they picked, right? And then I think right when you guys came, Google decided that they had to differentiate themselves using design because they started, started seeing other companies come through like Facebook, et cetera. And so they invested heavily in hiring a bunch of designers to really 
change their company and make them differentiated, right? And so the fact that Peter led material design, which is what Google ended up going with, is really amazing. And so maybe, Peter, you can just really quickly walk us through that thought process in terms of bringing Google from before in material design to after material design. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, to step back a little bit, Google was, when I got in there, it was like, okay, so I had these big ambitions of Google. Like, oh, I'm going to like change the world. And then when I got into Google and I worked on Android, the problems were like, okay, all of our assets look really, really bad. <laughs> and I was like, let's spend like, it was, just, it was just like, I felt like I was doing janitor work. <laughs> when I was like, oh, I, I was like trying to take the company to the moon. But then that was very kind of a little bit soul crushing as a designer because you're like, oh, we're just literally trying to make this thing from like green to blue, right? <laughs> just hopefully that'll be a little better and doesn't look like, I don't know. It doesn't, it looks like a little more tasty. And I think there was a big hurdle there. But then eventually I think we built like a good synergy between how we're working with the engineering team and the design team. And we all just got together and just really understood what we're trying to accomplish. Because like Google was predominantly like, oh, an engineering company is like, hey, if it's going to make the graphics slower, then we're not going to do it, right? Or if this is just a color tweak, it's not worth it. We'd rather work on like a feature or something like that, right? And so like as a designer, you never really felt like you had a seat at the table. You're just kind of picking up the leftovers or you're in service of someone else. Eventually, I think the ties kind of changed. And I think as UX design matured, I would hope that was a lot of the work that we're doing at Android and Google was helping mature that. I think people started to pay like a lot more respect to how product thinkers or design thinkers were thinking at Google. I remember this one line that we always had in Andrew that Matthias was always talking to The Verge about. It was, oh, can like an Android have a soul? And never once when you think about an app is like, oh, do you think an app should have a soul or something like that? And I think that was really, really powerful for us in the company where it's like, oh, there's a bunch of, like I think you mentioned like Google was testing 50 Shades of Blue um, and then whichever blue came out, right? It was like, that was perfect. Meanwhile, on the design team for us on Android, I was using the blue, but I wasn't doing any of that. I was like, okay, what is the blue that would be the best for like a whole ecosystem of people to like build apps and they would be happy with that and it would work for everyone. And it was really about the happiness of both the developers and the end users that are using it. So it was, I think I look back into that time, it's like, oh, it's like a very, very fundamental change in your mind of like how you should be building things. And that took a while. That took a lot of time. Like maybe a little, it was a little frustrating from the design side, but I look back at it as like, oh, actually like it was frustrating because it was like a very, very big paradigm shift. I think material design was a very interesting one because I think one way from an outside perspective, and maybe it feels like, oh, hey, a bunch of designers came up with a strategy to be like, hey, Gmail sucks, our logo sucks, and then like all these other things kind of suck and we got to like create the system to come together. But really it was, I was coming off a bunch of products that Anand just mentioned. I had nothing to do. My manager was just like, well, he's, he's like, well, just like keep doing what you're doing. I was like, oh, I don't know what to do with that feedback, but <laughs> I was like, okay, let me just go serendipitously like figure out what's going on. And I think there's a couple of other people that felt that way. Like Google is very much a place where like, oh, sometimes you just run out of stuff to do. And then you're just like, let me go either play volleyball or just work on this problem that like someone, or like the biggest problem in the world. And then eventually like a couple other people on my team are freed up. And then we just flew to New York. We're like, hey, we got to change the logo. And then we like met up with like another team from Creative Labs. We met up with like some people from Gmail really talented designers everywhere. And we're like, oh, let's redesign the logo. And then we just like, as designers do, you just keep pulling the threads like, well, we can't change the Google logo until we change Gmail because like Gmail is where the Google logo is going to be. Then so like, let's redesign Gmail. And then, oh, for redesign Gmail, what about Gmail and Android? And you just keep pulling this thread and then suddenly one week becomes three months and then the picture becomes clear. It's like, oh, wait, like we're on something. It's like, 
we're all not working together as a company, as designers. If you're working on Android Gmail, that's very different from like desktop Gmail. I experienced this firsthand with like Hangouts. It's like, oh, if you're working on like video conferencing on web, that was very different from how the designer thought about it on mobile and Android. And maybe because we're incentivized into different orgs or something like that. And it, Google's a very, very big company. But I think really what it was, was there was no vision for how we could all work together. And that was my last year at Google was really about, it wasn't even creating a platform or whatever material design is today. I gave a talk recently about how so much of it was, everyone was like, yes, we should design together, but no one was explaining how, or no one was showing how we could do it. And then I just remember those early months, I just like literally had nothing to do. So every single day I would come in, I design something new and be like, hey, this is like how design could be better both at Google, but for ecosystem of apps. This is how apps on an iPhone do it, but this is how it could be better than like how people think that they're building apps today. So I went from like designing Gmail on desktop and mobile to then even designing crazy things like Instagram. Like, oh, what if we redesign just like Instagram, like just more fundamental design principles of, I guess, good design and like good motion design and good like icon design and how could we level up just all of apps in the ecosystem? A lot of them were failed ideas. What I always love to tell wasn't like this perfect process that was, oh, we did a lot of exploration. We found out that five of these were really good. So then we executed on that. It was just failure after failure after failure after failure after failure. And communicating that to the whole company, like we published a website where everyone saw all these experiments. And I think something really profound happened. Everyone was suddenly inspired by all these failures we're producing to be like, oh, it's like that lunch problem where, hey, where does everyone want to go to lunch? And then no one knows where to start. <laughs> then someone like just yells something out bad, like, I don't know, McDonald's or like Arby's. <laughs> it's like, oh, let's go eat at Arby's. And then suddenly everyone starts to care about it. And I think one very specific example of that was for some reason, I just decided to redesign the clock app on Android. And like, there's this, and then I just didn't know what to do. It was like, oh, how do you make a clock different, right? It seems like a very solved problem. And then I made the hours bold. And then like the minutes not bold and then publish that. And then everyone was like in outrage of how it was designed. Yeah, everyone was really pissed. I I think I kind of got (laughs) not a death threat, but like a beat up threat from from, from like, I don't know, from a tech company employee. It was very non-threatening, but it was very emotionally distressful. (laughs) It was very interesting because like no one cared about the clock. Then everyone in the world, like at Google, cared about the clock. And leaning off of that, I was like, oh, there's something really powerful about just when you produce something as a designer, you're always like holding it close to yourself, but then putting yourself out there where like people can just take a look and see what you're thinking or even hate on it or love it, I think really moves a company forward. So I think a lot of the process and how we got material design off the ground, like just really exposing our hearts and our minds as designers, because no one's ever seen that before. I think like engineers, you can look at the code and you can like look at someone else's code and really peer into the brain. But designers don't really kind of have that, right? You could have it, it could, maybe you produce a design and it's like, you just see blue, but what we're producing was, uh, it's blue because of this. And because we tried this, because we felt this and all these things, and you're really just exposing how you made these decisions that really motivated this company. So once you got enough eyes on it and got everyone moving, what was the next progression to get people kind of aligned and starting to build or actually acting upon it, right? Because it seems like you captured everyone's minds. And I was going to say, just I think like the one skill that Peter does, and that's why he got so many eyes on it, is because 
a lot of tinkering going on, right? But I think Peter would always make that one epic site. So like Peter's sites were always these freaking mega sites where you collect all the mocks, put a story and narrative around it. I remember they'd freeze your computer. There was like 500 videos on them of all the different variations and stuff. But at Google, everyone was on IM, right? Gtalk and just sending stuff around. And so like stuff would catch fire. Like this is pre-Slack, stuff would catch fire because he made it really easy to disseminate his ideas and travel. So good designer hack for people is I think that was like a killer app of Peter and, and why he was able to be so influential with his designs. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I think oftentimes as designers feel like you should spend 90% of the time on design and then 10% on presentation and things like that. A lot of what I learned from Hollywood was that you kind of have to balance the distribution with the goodness of whatever you're creating and the message that you're trying to send. And if you're creating a really beautiful message, but you're not thinking about the distribution of it or you're not getting eyes on it, then it's almost meaningless. And so back to your question, Andrea, like I think so much of it was finding the right distribution for the information and hoping that people were into it and really loved it and were also being able to see it. On top of that, I think that could only get you so far because it's, it's like, this is cool. But then my main focus and my main priority as a job is to just make more features in this app, right? And there's this guy, Jonathan, that I worked with that was really awesome. I think around the same time that we met, he was working on this thing called the User Experience Alliance within Google. And he was like, essentially the UN of like, oh, do you want to join this alliance of design? And he was really reaching to every like big design figure in Google and just literally like knocking on their door and saying, hey, how can we better work together? And I think that's what you always look for in a good co-founder or just like a teammate. It's like, oh, you have a really awesome technical skill or you have this really awesome idea, but there's always the person that you need on your team that's going out there and just knocking on doors and just really pushing it and really helping get the message out. And thankfully we had one of those people. So Peter's story is crazy, right? Because you think that Google Hangouts or you think that some of these apps are done by an entire team. But really what it is, is just Peter basically prototyping the entire thing for everyone to like, oh yeah, that's a good idea and start building on top of it, right? So that happened for a lot of the projects that Anand mentioned for Google, but also happened for Uber too, right? And so we're not going to go into Uber too much because I want to get into spatial, but I just wanted to say Travis, the CEO of Uber, basically relied on Peter to be to like, hey, our app design sucks right now. Peter, can you just completely redesign our app? It wasn't an entire team. It was just literally Peter just prototyping the entire thing. I would love to learn because when Peter's in the zone cranking so hard, I feel like from my perspective, I've seen it a few times now. It's like to the outside observer, you're like, Music's blaring, you're like bobbing around <laughs> your computer, you got your style in your, what do you call the Wacom going, and all this shit's happening on your screen, and you've got like five different versions. I would love for you to break that down. Like, what is going on? Because you usually come out of this, I feel like it's one of those Carmack-style coding sprints, where it's like in a really small time, you come, because then you'll do the reveal. And I remember like whenever, I mean, I guess it's kind of like, maybe there's some of that Hollywood action, because you do like the premiere of like <laughs> what you were working on. It's always like, oh shit. Like there's always like a really nice cinematography and staging to, you know, it and everything. And it's always like really hyped to see a first, first Peter Mock. It's like those America's Got Talent where they're painting something like upside down or something. And then you're just like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? And then finally the reveal, like, oh shit, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I remember walking through like I think you were the Airbnb and I saw like a designer wearing like overalls and like had paintbrushes in there and they're like doing UX design. I thought it was like completely gimmicky. And then I remember going back to my desk and I just like realized how I like I'm I like have some similar form of like monument 
where like to paint a picture for everyone. My desk is like the messiest desk ever imagined. If there's snack wrappers, I'm like working so hard. The snack wrappers don't even go to the trash next to me. They go on my desk and they just pile up and pile up and pile up. And like if it's too clean, then I just get freaked out because it's just not kind of me. <laughs> and so like I always like just try to unknoll or like just mess something up on my desk. So I, it feels like someone's in college at my desk. At least for like the Uber thing, I very specifically, like the image that I remember in my head was like, oh, I joined, I was going to do this redesign. I sit at my desk, I pull open my desk, like, okay, I'm going to start writing down some ideas. And I see a notepad. I was like, oh, how nice. Like someone gave me a notepad. And then I go through the notepads, like there's writing already in it. I was like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> and then like also in like the thermos that was there, it was already filled with water. <laughs> I was just like, wait, am I? And then I just remember asking the guy next to me, I was like, oh, is like, what's the, it's like, am I in the right desk? Is someone actually sitting there? And the, the response was like, oh, this guy's gone. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, this is like really intense. And it turns out several people before me had been trying to redesign Uber every single month and every single year. And then like a lot of people had failed. And then my first month there, I remember it's like, oh, okay, like I've been through this so many times at Google. I know exactly what to do. And it's like, I'm going to use the same process. I'm going to like start small, do some ideation, put up a site, and then just really start to narrow down. And then uh, of course, the first thing I do in the first three months was like, I also fail, right? And so I just like add my list of the failures, the people that tried to redesign Uber and just totally failed again. And I think thinking about the design process is always really interesting because again, I'll paint the picture. It's like the designer comes in, paints a thousand bucks. Everyone's like 999 of those are wrong, but this one one is the perfect one. It's like never really, really like that. It's always like, oh, there's 2000 failures. You don't know of these failures, which one's a good one. You just kind of keep trying at it and you keep trying at it. It's just really interesting because it's like half the time you're just like failing all the time and you're never really uncovering anything. And that I think there's a moment where like all stars align, like the business. I remember Uber was there was a very specific moment and I'll paint another picture of my desk. I just come off my bachelor party and Anand was there where I broke. Oh, Will was there too. <laughs> I broke my leg. <laughs> I was like, I'm getting married in like two weeks. We're trying to figure out like the last piece to like motivate a company to like redesign Uber finally after like three years of failed redesigns. And then so I'm at my desk. I'm like, I think like my bandages are still bleeding out. And so like people are kind of grossed out. I have to elevate my knee and I'm in the cast. <laughs> the blood coming out of my cast. And then I have like two monitors up. I'm like with a pen and then like someone has to get me water <laughs> because like I can't really go to the kitchen. I think the kitchen was on another level. And so it was kind of a, a pain in the butt to do that. But at that moment, it was I had a broken leg. It was really stressful. I was going to get married in like a couple of weeks. Um, suddenly, the business changed. We found like we found a really awesome silver lining where it's like, oh, we want to change how all of pricing happens in Uber, and therefore, oh, we need to get destinations upfront. And so, like when you back in the day when you used to get Uber, you could just hit a button, get a ride, and car would come to you, and then you tell them where to go. But this time, we're just oh, the redesign was really built around like oh, if we got a destination up front, if we ask for that, that'll add more friction, and people might hate that. But then, what's going to happen now is like we're going to be able to change all of our pricing Uber and hopefully make that more efficient for everyone and be really upfront to the users about how much they're going to pay. We could be really upfront about where they should set the location. So then, like oh, if you're headed down south, maybe you should get on the one way on the left, and every. Everything kind of started to align that way. And then that also happened like at a very chaotic time with my desk and my broken leg. So, so I mean, that's to say that design, I think every single time when I feel like I've trying to crack it, there's, I always feel like I'm failing. 
And I definitely am failing. And I think even like this is maybe my seventh product. I always still kind of feel like I'm failing. I think this is a good way to, to segue into spatial. But at the end of it, I feel like every single moment, there's like a stars align kind of moment that you start to realize and it starts to show its light. And that's when you as the designer are kind of like motivated again, or like you're just kind of waiting for that moment. Can you example of noticing that moment and how it feels just to kind of paint a clear picture of coming out of that darkness that I think a lot of us at startups have experienced? Not even in startup, but within a team, there's like a moment where you're just trying to shove a product and feature and design down people's throats. And then there's another moment where it's like you're talking about it and everyone's just so aligned on what you're building and they're motivated for that. And you're like suddenly not like force feeding your child like their breakfast anymore. Sorry for the dad metaphor, but like I just recently <laughs> became a dad. But people are just kind of eating it up by themselves. Maybe still with you holding the spoon. But I think there's a moment like that that I always feel and always happens. And like sometimes it's, it's kind of a fake out, right? Because it's like, oh, everyone's like, yes, let's build that. And then the world changes and COVID happens. And then like suddenly it's like <laughs> that wasn't exactly it, right? And people were motivated possibly just maybe for a short while. And so... I was talking to like uh, my teammate, Jason, and we're talking about uh, Buckminster Fuller. And he has this line that's called, you never really think about beauty when you're designing something, but then you know when you come out with it, if it's not beautiful, then you know it's not the right design. And I think so much of it is kind of like that. It's like, you don't know as you're doing it, but then like once you start to see the light, you kind of like understand the beauty. So I love to move on to Spatial because you guys mentioned your seventh product. And so... Anand, we see kind of like the parallels, right? When you first came out of grad school, the mobile phone wasn't a thing yet. It was going to be the new platform and you're really building a new experience to basically to build on top of this new platform, right? And, and I think Spatial started out as that as well. Like VR was the new platform and you're basically building this new experience for people to ex really experience this new technology in a different way because this platform has different attributes than previous generations, right? And so tell us a little bit about that story, of how it got started and why you started it. Sure, yeah. I mean, so I think uh, I sold to, we got acquired by Google in 2010. I'd been there like four and a half years. I did a couple different things like Google Android for a bit, worked on Google Plus, like Google Mobile, Social, Google Photos for a while, Google Glass for a little bit. I ultimately left Google and was trying to figure out the next thing. I wasn't quite sure if I was going to actually ever do anything again, or am I just going to like chill? Like some founders are like, they already know their next thing six months before they leave. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not one of those guys. I want it to really be real, come from first principles and like really arrive at it. So definitely had like a wanderer's journey for like a year and a half traveling and all that stuff, like just trying to live, design my life for like, what time do I want to wake up? How much like, you know, do I want to work out? Do they like watch TV, you know, like read, blah, blah, blah try to kind of figure out all those fundamental things. And then the key moment for me, well, actually two key moments. One was like, I was trying to do my bucket list stuff, like just travel and travel and travel. And then after, at some point you're like, man, this gets, it's just too much junk food. You got to have some vegetables at some point. I felt like I was hitting a wall. I'm like, man, I'm not even like, I'm traveling so much. I'm not even storing these memories anymore. I'm just, I remember there was like some epic sunset and I'm like, I'm not even appreciating this. It's like, it just feels like yet another epic sunset. I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, how, why can I, how am I so out of touch that I'm not even appreciating this? I've got to like get off the treadmill. And so I started dabbling again. You know, I was, drones were like, I started dabbling in this drone project, actually. I don't know how I got onto the drone thing, actually, but so there was two things. Like I was trying to basically program drones to fly and make it kind of be like Magneto, like where I could like control, do hand gestures and have the swarm of drones fly according to what I was doing. And I was just like, I don't know exactly how to do it, but I'll kind of mess around and see what I can do. 
I've got a little diary of how I kind of like, you know, I, learned, I put an LED on the drone to figure out how to program it and then what it was actually moving compared to what I was actually doing. And, and that just got the creative juices flowing again. And I realized, like, I heard somebody say this. I think it was like Alec Baldwin interviewing Tom York or something. And they're like, when you're a creative person, you kind of just need to create. You need to get it out. You kind of don't have a choice in the matter. It's like you otherwise you'll just get like, I don't know, you'll get frustrated or depressed or whatever. Like you've got it. And I think I realized, OK, maybe I am actually a creative person. I actually need to make stuff. So I started that process. And then and that got me back in the mix. I went to a conference called IO in Minnesota. It's like, you know, like kind of emerging tech ITP vibe. Uh, type conference, tried the HoloLens for the first time. And then that like blew me away because I was like, I thought AR, to be honest, Spatial was AR first. I believe in the narrative that someday, actually it took me a while to believe, but I believe the narrative that someday your next computer is going to be a headset, right? You can imagine all your displays going away and having a headset that kind of like approximates every display. It can look exactly like what your phone does or it could be bigger. So I'm like, that'll eventually happen, but it's really far away. Try the HoloLens. I'm like, holy shit, this is incredible there's a freaking line on the table and as i move my head it's still there and this is crazy and like now the field of view it was like a peephole literally into the future because the field of view is so tiny but i'm like this is great i know the playbook i like microsoft's gonna screw this up they're gonna do the same shitty interface they did for tablet pcs and lose mobile like you know when they lost mobile i had a whole bunch of prototypes and ideas from like stuff that like i'd been thinking about of like how you could bring 3D interfaces to web browsing and stuff like that, like kind of extensions of the bump top stuff, like, and use that dimension and also the gestures and stuff. So I'm like, I could totally build with this. I met a friend of mine. I'd asked a friend at that time, like, should I buy a HoloLens to hack on this stuff? And they're like, you know the amount of shit you waste money on? You should definitely buy a HoloLens. Like, definitely, you waste so much money on so much crap. Definitely spend the money on this because this is actually for your future kind of thing. I'm like, all right, that's a good rationale. And then I showed it to another friend, and he's like, he kind of did that Andy Bechtolstein moment of Uber. Where he's like, I'm going to write you 100K check on the spot and sold this other friend, Sonny Number. They were the two from Extreme Labs just to connect the story from Toronto. And they kind of gave me that. He's like, you put in some money and we'll go do this, like, you know, go hire and build. And what I wanted to accomplish with my next thing is like, I don't want to just do anything for the sake of doing it. I want to leave a generational impact on the world, which what I mean by that is when I'm gone, I want my fingerprints to be on the history for the good. And I'm like, how can I do that? Like, should I go into NGOs and charity and stuff? I thought about that, but I'm like, okay, I think I'm like top whatever percentile at like this 3D user interface thing. I think I'm like pretty unique. It's like this weird, unique thing that not a lot of people know about. I think I can kind of use that skill set and, oh, the next platform is going to be 3D user interfaces. So I should probably jump in, you know, and then, and that is a way to, that's probably my clearest path to do that. So that was the kind of genesis. And with spatial, like start with the HoloLens, not maybe akin to kind of Peter's uh, tinkering around material design, right? It actually makes me think, because we didn't exactly know what we were going to do. Let's try to explore this idea space. Like our computers are headset, just like the iPhone reimagined what maps was, what the browser was, what music was, what your notes, all that stuff. Let's do that when your room is your monitor, right? So like when I search for Wikipedia and I type in like the Titanic, I should be on the deck of the Titanic or my wall should be full of information or just reimagine all those interfaces, which is, I find super fun because that's kind of what Bumped Up was trying to do too, is like, hey, let's just throw away all the baggage. We're kind of, at that point, especially like we were at a point in computing where we had all this legacy, almost like design tech debt like desktop metaphor menus and stuff. And iPhone was the first thing to kind of reboot that and throw that all away and start from first principle. It took them a long time. It took them like four years, I think, internally to incubate that stuff. So that was the dream of Spatials. Like, hey, let's make some of the foundational interfaces for augmented reality, which we think is going to be the, the future of computing.
Yeah, I mean, like for people that don't really know Anand's work, like I think, like at first I would look at it as a simple observer and like, why is he buying a hundred drones? <laughs> like, why is he like, why does he have so many gadgets that are like, like the random, like, are these just toys? But I think the really cool thing about Anand and almost his like life's thesis is that computing and digital experiences, like he's creating these statements that all those digital experiences should be more physical, right? And it's a very, very bold statement because I think when you think about digital experiences, it's always like, oh, like why should it be bound by like the physical limits of like, I don't know, reality and things like that. But I think there's something really, really awesome about what Anand produces, which is I like to think that he believes that interfaces should be more human. And the way that they become more human is like if they're like even better than the physical buttons that we have today in real life. Part of the story that I actually think is really relevant to kind of what we've been talking about is the comeback toward its head right? <laughs> you started off at your master's like this kid that felt kind of out of place at TED. And then after a series of experiences meeting Peter and both of you guys have incredibly accomplished and have achieved a lot in like the technology industry. Now you and Peter come back to TED with Spatial. What was that experience like coming back to TED? It was dope, man. I mean, so I was lucky enough to keep going. Like I'd probably been around 10 times. I think like I'd missed a couple and stuff. And then you know, I had this, Mike Herf gave me this advice. He's like, he's the Picasso founder who introduced me, Andy Hertzfeld. He's like, I've been coming to TED at my financial detriment for years, but it's led to all these other things like him getting acquired, like him having a five-hour conversation with Larry Page and getting acquired by Google and stuff like that. So I'm like, okay, I mean, I guess this has worked out for me. But what was cool about the comeback tour, this was like bringing the crew. Peter was able to come, Jenna, my co-founder. We had a few other folks come through. Roman, one of our uh, early engineers, he was like, it's my life dream to go to TED. Seeing them have that experience too, like we're at the thing. I don't know what famous people or whatever you met, but just seeing these people walk by and seeing them have that first experience that I had, you know what I mean? Like that first time, that was really cool. And then also, oh, TED, it can be kind of awkward because you're just like, um, hi guys, you want to talk to me? <laughs> but whereas like if you have a demo and they want to talk to you and you have a, a reason to connect with them and stuff and you can try to blow their minds with this thing. So we had this booth set up there where the spatial team got to come down. And so that was cool. It was cool to just bring the whole world in. I'm kind of curious. It was cool to see, because I think Ted's honestly really special and really inspiring. And seeing, I really wanted these guys to have that experience. I'm like, yo, go into the main hall, like, watch some of the talks and whatnot. And it was just cool seeing them all. I'm kind of curious what Peter's take on Ted was, but it was awesome. Yeah, I mean, the whole crew. mine was like, when I think about the memories, I just think about kind of the stressful ones, to be honest. Ted was extremely stressful, right? <laughs> to set another backdrop, it's like we have this booth set up and then I forget every big person's coming. And I think in one particular, like Jaron Lanier, he is the forefather of VR and he came up and we're trying to give him a demo and our demo was like half working. We couldn't get an internet connection and then it was like too bright. So then we couldn't actually organize the headset to find what was up or down. And it was like, oh, we're going to make it because like this is the person who's been to VR. <laughs> and he's just like, it doesn't work. It crashes. Sorry, I don't have time for this. And then, like, I just, and then I think, I just remember feeling very, very like, oh man, we're like failing and failing and failing and failing. And it was like demo after demo that was like, wasn't really, really working. But I think towards the end of the week, things got a lot better and we started getting a hand of it. And we had some like really, really killer demos. I think it felt like a lot of failure, but it was really, really cool. I remember we had this demo that everyone wore an AR headset. And then you take photos. And then if you took a photo on your phone and you got the app, like it would just show up on in real space with you if you're wearing a headset. And it was really cool because one person was like, oh, wow, this is way better than putting a phone in someone's face. And just showing like, hey, check out this photo of my friend, right? And it was literally more like how you would do it in real life where it's like you take a photo and you would like just hand it to them. It's like, hey, check out like this really cool moment in my life. And then I think that was really powerful that people saw that with us, even though we have a ton of failed demos to <laughs> really important people. 
So at that time, we all felt like VR was just the, the brink of blowing up, right? This is maybe like, how long ago is this? This is maybe like three, four years ago, but maybe a little bit earlier, later than that. But basically, the, VR and AR has always been on the brink of, okay, it just, it's going to be one more year before it blows up. And that time hasn't really come yet, right? And so you started this company and for like the last four, five, six years now, you've been waiting for that to blow up, right? Can you just walk us through that process, how that's felt and the pivots that you've had to go through in order to get to where you are today? Yeah. I mean, TLDR, we're done waiting. We're not waiting anymore. We're doing platforms people use today. So like the web, mobile, and VR, we're a doorway to the future kind of thing. In terms of primary platform, we did have to evolve, right? Like start off on HoloLens. And that was three to $5,000. Only enterprises could afford it. And so then we became an enterprise company, which I don't think any of us wanted to be. Enterprise sucks, you know, like no offense to any enterprise owners, but like, it's just not us. We're like kind of consumer-y people. And then COVID hit, and then we like build this VR version. I think we had some good advice from an advisor who's like, AR kit dropped and we're like, okay, you're waiting for AR to happen, but AR kit is here. Throw away your unconscious bias. What can you make happen with AR kit? Because it's the device that has a billion people penetration already. You got to make it work. So that we tried that and we like trying to grind it out and see if we could find something there. We made a bunch of cool experiments. We should, I would love to, we should actually resurrect some of these because there's a lot of cool thinking there. But then COVID happened and we're like, oh shit, everyone's stuck at home. They're not going to buy a HoloLens. And there's a huge need for like remote connectivity and a, and a higher, something more interesting than Zoom. So like immediately try to port overnight to Quest. So we get, so Quest is our primary platform now. It actually, each step of the way, and, and then finally, we're like, okay, wait, not everyone has a Quest. I think they stopped selling them between the Quest 1 and the 2 or whatever. And we're like, okay, let's get to the web. People want this on the web. It's just too con- inconvenient to throw on the headset kind of thing for some people. And then we switched to like web. And then actually, I think someone said it, it's like every step we tried to get ourselves more and more access, more accessibility, like the platform we choose has like just more and more reach. And while still having that kind of path to the future. But it's definitely been... I mean, I definitely miscalculated how long this was going to take in terms of like, like, I'm like, we were part of the HoloLens 2 launch and I'm like, oh man, this is going to like change the game and blah, blah, blah. But before it launched kind of thing. But I think I had observed the speed of mobile's evolution, which was crazy. The iPhone 1 to like every year, I think even twice a year, you were getting like a rev and it was awesome. And it was just like, now we're launching FaceTime. Now we're launching like True Depth. Now we're, you know what I mean? Like now there's an AR kit sensor on it. Like it was just evolving so fast. And I assumed that that same curve would happen. It didn't. But the other thing I think why we're done waiting, my realization after working on ARVR for so long is like, it's awesome. It's really fun. But there is a major activation cost. We are so lazy as people. Like when we see a video on landscape, like on Instagram stories, like we don't even want to rotate the phone. We're like, that is too much of an activation to rotate your wrist. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like, we're way too lazy to put on a headset. Like if we won't rotate the video, like I'll skip, you know, it's like, okay, come on, dude, skip or whatever. So my realization is like, unless it's got to get to that point, the headset's got to get the point where you'll wear it all day and you actually use it as your computer. Because otherwise, if you ever have to put it on, it's just going to have to pass that threshold of, of putting it on. And it is a weird thing because... We will go on a plane to meet someone for a meeting or we used to, and that's a lot of effort and a lot of hassle, but we would do it. Whereas putting on a headset is like a lot easier, but it's just that value is not necessarily there in all cases. So while it's an awesome platform, I think it's going to be a while before we have that all day wear. And until we have that all day wear, it'll remain niche. I'm really looking forward to the Apple headset though. Let's see what they do. They always rock. They always rock. So we'll see what happens. 
So ever since you opened it up, you've really built a brand name for yourselves. Whenever I tell people that I work for Spatial, people have heard of it because you partner with Web3 companies like OpenSea and SuperRare to big brands like Vogue and all these different brands, right? And so I remember you telling me that there was like an aha moment when you went to the Met, right? And you basically showed Alpha Spatial to the people that you were sitting around. Could you just tell us a little bit about that moment? So Instaspatial plug that's something Peter made in one of these kind of blitzkrieg hack fests kind of thing. I think the beautiful thing, well, one, we're, okay, set the scene. We're at the Temple of Dendur, like that room that you see in the, the Met, or sorry, at Ocean's Eleven or whatever, that Egyptian temple, like in that lake. So like, and it's a Web3 conference. The scene is quite epic. So that's it, contributing to the aha moment. But basically, pulled up special on my phone, sitting at this table. There were some baller Web3 folks there, right? I'm like, oh, cool. Do you got NFTs? What's your ETH address? I put it in and then I show them this thing. And then basically what Instaspatial does is it takes your wallet address, instantly makes a 3D gallery. And he's like, oh shit, that's my doodle or that's my whatever. And he's like, holy crap. And then other people around the table is like, why is he so excited? Let me see. They're like, oh man, that is really cool. And that's all piggybacking on the cinematography magic of Peter too, because when it opens the gallery, like sometimes Instaspatial hasn't even loaded yet, but it has this cool star wipe effect or something, kind of like a Star Wars or like a Kill Bill kind of intro. So you just feel so hyped and you haven't even seen anything yet. It's got you so hyped. And I think like that's some of the magic of the design that Peter brings, but that just got everyone so hyped at that table. Like, oh man, can I get mine? Or like, where can I sign up? Take my card. That was pretty freaking cool. This is the question that I want to ask Peter now is because we have Spatial, which you have an entire team basically building all together for Spatial. And then Peter's off on the side, prototyping kind of like Uber or kind of like the Google Google experience with the crazy messy desk and all that music blaring. <laughs> and he basically builds Instaspatial, right? And Instaspatial is not a completely new infrastructure. It's like completely just his own, right? And so I find that fascinating. So please tell us, how did you do this, Peter, as a one-man team? Yeah, I think technologies really change, right? Or maybe professional or like maybe designers have changed where like I think designers are a little more tooling's a lot better where designers can actually code. And I think the job as a designer is to always take any idea, no matter how bad or crazy it might seem. I'd say like, there's no way I'd be at spatial if I had this appetite to like, if I had like a sensible like <laughs> rationale to be like, oh yeah, let me join on company work. He's like, let's build a future that is in here. There's no hardware. And like, I have this idea, let's make everything 3D, <laughs> like on your face. <laughs> and then I was like, what? That kind of seems a little crazy. And maybe that's not the most stable thing for my family. But <laughs> I think designers and founders and startup people, like we're all explorers. And so we're very excited to explore just like the unexplored. As for like Instaspatial, we had a hackathon. I just came off of like paternity leave. And then Everyone had all these ideas and we've been talking about these ideas for like two years. And I was just like very much like how we're waiting like two years to like find the right AR headset that was going to come out. I was pent up frustration. I came back to like, just like sit down and be like, oh, we have all these same problems again. And like one of the problems that we had was like, oh, loading 3D takes super long. We can't get it on a phone. There's not really good performance for a game on a phone. And then I sat down with our VP of engineering, Mike, which was also Buntop and Google, and we had like a good relationship. And then he's like, hey, do you want to work on this problem? I was like, as a designer, it doesn't seem like the funnest thing to work on. And then, but also I know from my history is like, oh, most boring problems are also the most interesting sometimes once you start digging into them. And then so during the hackathon, we just both kind of worked on like, okay, how, how can we make this faster? And we just like discovered a lot of things that we like found the things that we wouldn't discover. Like, oh, so much of, I think this came from Mana is like, oh, so much of 
why games don't run well on mobile phones is just because textures are too big in 3D and we could probably repack those. And so we did a lot of really cool design around progressively loading 3D models, kind of like JPEGs progressively load on the web, right? I think a lot of it was pent up, like we've been talking about this for a long time. So like, let's just actually do it. And then, yeah, it was just a lot of that. It wasn't just me, by the way. Maybe I was forcing it down. <laughs> like I was like really chipping out away every single day. But like a lot of the concepts the company always had and for like reasons that aren't really clear to me, it's like we just never really got further than writing down those ideas and those problems. And then during a hackathon, I just had the guts to kind of come up with material and be like, OK, I'm going to like try to do this. Well, the best thing, too, like that, I think like as a designer, it can be frustrating. Like, you know, like I think Peter talked about it at Android, like, oh, we can't do it because of memory constraints or whatever. Right. And it's like, oh, yeah, let me show you with my own prototype. And it's like, boom, I did it. So now why can't we do it? There's a little bit of that, which is kind of nice, honestly. It's refreshing because it's like, okay. And then also, as a founder, you're always like, oh, man, who's that guy who's going to come out of nowhere? Like, who's those two folks in the basement who's going to come out and crush our team because we're missing, we have some blind spot that we're just missing, right? And so Spatial's been going for six years, so we have an older stack. And, and we've tried to modernize and refactor and keep it fresh. But you've got to keep that one eye over the shoulder of who's creeping up behind you. Right. And in some ways, it's like, OK, that we learned a ton with what Peter could do and couldn't do as a one man army, for example. Right. Really. Yeah. Really helpful that way. Yeah. Just to repeat what Alpha Spatial does is that you load up a website on your phone or on your desktop. You put in your ETH address or your Solana address and instantly you have like this beautiful museum gallery with all your NFTs. Right. And so this kind of touches upon one of the Web3 misconceptions that we realized or were well, yeah, what we realized is that it's actually not decentralized, right? Basically, you can't actually read the NFTs off of the blockchain. You actually have to hit an API, right? Whether it's OpenSea's API or Magic Eden's API. And so, Peter, can you tell us about, as you're building this, interacting with these APIs? Like, what is that process like for you? Like, what is it actually like building off of, like, on like, Web3? I mean, I always thought it was very tribal and with it, it is. But the API is like actually the opposite of what I would think of like tribal. It's like completely open, right? Like how you authenticate, how you read things. It's like, it's just very, very, very open. And without me realizing, like, I think you always think about Web3 being open. And I think you'd scoff at the idea of Web3. It's like, why is Web3 different from Web2? But then once you start actually building something, you start to like understand very, very, very quickly like, wait, I don't need to give my credentials to Facebook to just get this data. Like, I could just ask for the data. And if someone decides to make it public, then I could actually read it. And there's something really, really beautiful about building a product like that. That's like, really, if I never built this, I probably would be a big skeptic of like this whole idea of Web3 or even like Web 2.5 or whatever people are calling it nowadays or this interim. And I think developing on it, it's blown my mind how like you could have access to all this information in a hopefully like very, very positive way. And you could build something really, really quick. Like I can move so much faster building a Web3 application than I could build in a Web2 application. Yes, like I think part of the problems like hitting blockchain is that it's maybe sometimes take a long time or, or it's down some of the times. But I think we're kind of getting around that and like how we got around in, in spatial. It's like, oh, actually we like did the like anti-Web3 thing, which is like, oh, we backed it up on our own servers and then just cached it on our side just to make sure that we could like return it faster. It's like if everyone had the same S3 instance and you could just rewrite whatever you want. Yeah, I think there's a lot of hate on it, but do you want things faster? Do you want them slow, right? It's like, <laughs> and it's like, I guess, do you want the truth to be there? Or like, do you want the truth to come a little later? It, 
Yeah, I don't know. They're very interesting concepts and problems. I wouldn't say I'm engineer enough to really dive into those and answer the right questions there or answer the right questions there. But as a designer, I think it's a really, really beautiful thing to see. I wish we could go longer, but we have a couple of people that have to go now. So we have to end the podcast. Peter and Anand, thank you so much for your time. How can people find you? Anandex on Twitter and then Spatial.io. Get on there, build, or go have some fun. Me too. Spatial.io, Twitter's Peter GNG. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you. Hell yeah, you too. This was really fun. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, WLD.SHOW. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you. 